Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the Cops Office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello, I'm Gilbert Moore and welcome to The Beat. According to the National Blue Alert Network, which is administered by the Cops Office, in 2018, the last full year that statistics were available, 251 law enforcement officers were shot in the line of duty. Of that number, 51 officers, or approximately 20% of those who were shot, succumbed to their wounds, unfortunately. For every law enforcement officer who is sworn to protect and serve, the threat of confronting a criminal with a gun is a very real part of the job. For those who have had that experience and have been shot in the process, the road to recovery can be a lonely and an uncertain path. Making a significant physical recovery may only be a part of being deemed fit for duty and returning to work. The emotional toll that a wounded officer must endure and the impact on family are equally critical aspects of the process. Today, we are speaking with Ranger Brody Young from the Utah Division of Parks and Recreation. Ranger Young is joining us from the field via cell phone. In 2010, Ranger Young was shot nine times by an assailant, endured a lengthy recovery, and today he is back on the job serving the people of Utah. Ranger Young, welcome to the beat. Oh, thank you, Gail. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, can I call you Brody? Is that okay for the purposes of this interview? Yeah, that's great. Brody's good. So, Brody, to get started, for those of our listeners who are like me and do not know a whole bunch about the world of a park ranger other than the fact that you work remotely and far from support and backup, tell us about the demands of being a ranger. Well, you know, Utah is very open, public land, sparsely populated other than what's on the Wasatch Front in northern Utah. So I live in the southeast portion, Moab area. We've got two national parks that around us and then a whole lot of just public land and uh, as a ranger we often work alone and that mm-hmm. requires a little more vigilance than maybe when you have a partner or you have backup that's two minutes away my backup could be as much as an hour if not two hours away and so first day police academy i show up and they show us this video and it's very graphic and it's of an officer and the officer dies in, in this contact he watched this subject that he pulled over, load a rifle, and took several minutes while the officer stood there and did nothing. And then uh, the officer was killed. And you had the graphic sounds of, you know, that officer dying and, and, and gargling on his own, you know, blood. It was a wake-up call. And then after the video, they pointed to uh, me and some of the other rangers in, in my group and those who work, you know, out in remote areas that you guys will be the first probably get involved in, in, you know, an officer-involved shooting. So it was a real wake-up call, and it, I guess, lit a fire in me to really be diligent and consistent as far as training and mindset and uh, will will to survive. And so as a ranger, we meet a lot of great people that are out on vacation. There are, unfortunately, as, as all officers know, that there's the few that, that uh, aren't nice and have ulterior motives. And so that's the life of a park ranger. You got to be, got to be more diligent and uh, play the, the, you know, head low, nice, nice, sharp kind of mentality. Talk nice, think mean, and work through, you know, people who want to be alone out in the desert or up in the mountains. And so it's a really fun job. I'm, I'm kind of talking about the negative side of it, but most days I'm on a boat, motorcycle, ATV, uh, snowmobile, grooming trails, and uh, meeting a whole lot of great people out there. So was there anything in your background that prepared you for being a ranger? I mean, what attracted you to it, right? So there's the outdoor aspect, and then, you know, quite frankly, there's the hardcore law enforcement side of it. What prepared you for that? What attracted you to it? So uh, before I was a a ranger, I was a professional river guide. And so that involved taking people on trips down some intense white water. I worked in the Grand Canyon, Cataract Canyon. These are the southern Utah, northern Arizona rivers. Big, wide, big rapids when the water's flowing. We're talking 
25, 30 foot waves. And here you have a group of, you know, 17 to 20 people and their lives are in your hands. And that was a thrill and a rush. And it, and it led to, to me being a river ranger is what I got hired on as initially as a ranger. But uh, you could say I'm a hippie turned cop. And I think hippies make the best cops. We <laughs> we like people. We know the other side of the law. And you got that opportunity to work outside and to help people maybe get through a tough situation or find where they need to go when they don't know where to go. And so that that's kind of what led to led to me being a, a ranger was I had this uh, motor boating experience on big rivers, big white water, and then just having people's lives in your hands. You know, an honor an honor to serve and people, you know, back to their tent or back to their homes at night. So So on the day that you encountered your attacker, was it one of those days where you were kind of doing the things that you typically do? out in the field or uh was there anything unique or special about the day before the incident occurred so i ran a normal shift during the day and we had this opportunity to work some overtime that night the youth alcohol overtime grand shift anyway it involved taking alcohol from underage drinking and and whatnot and you know get them back home to their parents or what so it wasn't a typical shift. Our focus was primarily let's find drugs and alcohol and deal with the, the partiers, you know, out in the desert. And so that's how my shift began that night. My supervisor and I, we met up before the shift. We decided where we were going to go. So we we're going to go out and scout areas, find those party spots, and then come back, jump in the same truck and go and contact those groups. And so we separated and I went north of town there along the river corridor, the Colorado River, and went to this trailhead. It's one of the most difficult trailheads as, as far as the trail that follows it. You get a lot of search and rescue calls and a lot of injuries and, and worse. And so I was just checking trailheads on my way out to these party spots. And the first trailhead I go to is called the Poison Spider Mesa Trailhead. And there's just one car, a lone car, sitting in the parking lot. I think it's empty. My idea was, or how I treated my contact with this car was, I was going to write the plate down and then come back and check on it later. Because I thought maybe someone was up on that trail that was lost or hurt or worse. And so I wrote the, I got out of my truck. It was dark, about 8.30 at night, 7, 8, 8.30. It's uh, late November. It's a warm night, kind of a warm before the storm. And I walked around this vehicle and I wrote the license plate down and I got the back seat and the four-door passenger car and I knocked on the window because I saw this lump kind of it looked like someone might be sleeping in the vehicle so I knocked on it I knocked on it several times and woke this gentleman up and he opened the door I said who I was and asked if he was okay and then we talked about where this guy could go camp because he wasn't allowed to camp in this parking lot and then I asked for some identification he gave me the name of Michael Orr you recognize that name? No. It's from the movie Blindside. This is 2010, November. The movie had just come out. But he gave me this name and date of birth. Turned out to be right, fake name, date of birth. Little did I know. I mean, it's Blindside. I was about to get blindsided. So I wrote the information down. I asked him to wait there, and I walked back to my vehicle. Just as I was turning to get in, had my truck door open, that's when the shot rang out. Boom, first round, he hits me in my left hand. Now I'm left-handed, and immediately when that round hit my, my left humerus, it just shattered it, and I screamed and turned away, and I yelled out, I'm shot, and I, I knew it, and I turned away. And as I was turning away, I looked over my other shoulder, and I could just see muzzle flash and him coming at me and uh, taking a lot of rounds. And I believe when, uh, when I turned and I was away and some of those other rounds hit me, Brown went into my vest that I wear religiously. You wear the uniform, you wear that vest. And I'd been wearing it. Those rounds had hit me, and I, and I went to the ground, and he moved up on me very quickly. It was just shooting over me, right, almost standing above me. Round after round, and I was thinking, when, when is this going to stop? Finally, he stopped shooting, and I have, I'm presented with this moment. You can either lie down and die, or you can get up and fight. It's like time sits still. It's a terrible cliche, but and I decided I, well, I decided well before 
this ever occurred, that I was not going to die. And so I got up, which I think surprised him. And I did what, what you trained to do. I went to the back of my truck. He went to the front. And we started playing this cat and mouse game around my truck. I'm looking down at my left hand, and it won't respond. It won't move. And I think, you idiot, use your other hand. And I had a pad, a pen of paper, and a flashlight. I just threw that stuff down, and I crossed through and grabbed my gun and, and got a really firm grip on it and then, uh, you know, went up and to see if I could find him in my sight picture, right? I'm at the right rear of my truck, and he's at the front left side, and I see him through my windows. And I immediately began to fire through my vehicle at, at him. Now, I'd had training the spring before about shooting through your truck, shooting through glass. What we did was we got a bunch of windshields and we put an officer, a ranger in a truck and have them draw inside the truck and shoot through the windshield to get the effect or to know what it feels like and where the rounds go and where they should go once they hit that windshield and once you create a hole to shoot through it. But I'd learned to shoot through my cover, which I don't think I would have done otherwise, but I'd gone through the motions physically, mentally. And so I fired a bunch of rounds through my truck and I carry a 40 caliber at the time it's a block and counting my rounds because I knew I had 15 and I'd have to right reload and I only had one hand to do it fortunately I had the, the training to, to load with your non-dominant hand and so what I did was I released the mag gun in my right hand and I put the gun between my legs upside down and I grabbed a, a magazine and I unfortunately dropped the first magazine but we carry two, so I grabbed the second, and I put it into the handle of the gun, and I used my rear bumper to feed the magazine into the gun, and then the rear sights on the bumper to chamber around, and then I went up to see if, like, see if he was still coming after me, and he was in that same general area through my window, so I fired more into that window, and he backed up and went in front of his car. I moved up to my right rear mirror, and then he raised his hand. And so I stopped shooting because we're trained, right? When the threat isn't coming after you, you stop going after the threat. So he'd raise his hands. It seemed clearly. It got really silent. And he said, you got me. And then I went or said in my mind, oh, thank you. And I began to lose consciousness. I think my adrenaline had run out. I sustained a lot of damage when he was standing over me and you know, firing all those rounds in me. He fired 15 rounds, and nine of those rounds entered or entered and exited, exited me. Let me just read the list of the extent of the damage. So I had uh, laying on the ground there. Um, I had damage to my heart, small intestine, colon, right kidney, liver, diaphragm, left lung, spine, pelvis, left humerus, left tricep muscle, right forearm, right femoral nerves, and my right hip flexor. I don't know how. I got up off the ground, but mentally, I, I did not want to die. It never occurred to me at any moment that death was an option. I could still breathe, and I was still conscious. I was getting up. So I began to backpedal and lose consciousness. I fired more rounds as I was falling unconscious. I ended up behind my truck about 20 feet, and I think he thought at that point that I had died. And so... What he did was he got in his car and drove off and uh, drove uh, down and away from civilization out into what's called Canyonlands National Park or near the border of Canyonlands, which is, you can imagine red rocks and a river meandering through it. It's just miles and miles of just no civilization, open desert, and it's real easy to disappear. There are thousands of caves one could drop into and, and never be found again. That's what makes the solitude of Southwest Utah so great. Wow. What happened next? Well, I woke up several minutes later. I'm on my back and feel like someone has poured concrete on me. I just, I can't, I can't move. And my adrenaline has run out. And I, I've got to get to my truck radio, which is about 30 feet away. But I can't, I can't get to it. I just have no energy. I'm in a canyon. I was wearing a handheld radio, but I, I couldn't. 
I knew it wouldn't work. And so my only way was to, to get to that truck radio. And the most remarkable thing happened. Thoughts of or the faces of my wife and, and three kids who at the time were six, three, and nine months of age, like almost appeared before me. It's almost like a little cheering section, like, get up, you can do it. And that gave me the strength, the energy to begin to slowly roll. And so what I do is my arm uh, was really loose and lifeless because of the damage. And so with gun in hand, I can roll onto my stomach and take some breath. And this is a gravel parking lot. And so you taste the dirt and the exhaust coming off my truck. And slowly half roll onto my stomach, breathe, roll onto my back, breathe. It took some time to get to the rear bumper, and then I readjusted and rolled down left side of my truck. And I get to my truck door, and uh, my door is open. Now, I've always felt I should keep that door open uh, ever since I started in law enforcement. I never liked to be inside. I never liked to write tickets inside the truck, contact people inside. I just always felt strongly I should be outside, and that door but, you know, made thousands of stops, and I always keep that door open. I have that luxury. I'm not on a highway. I'm on a dirt road or a parking lot or whatnot. But that door is open, and I couldn't have opened it otherwise. And so I reach up. I lay my gun on the floorboard. I reach the radio. I'm really calm about what I was about to say on the radio because we're taught not to sound, you know, hysterical on the radio, yelling and screaming. So thinking about what am I – what I'm – going to say okay price 12 to 6 9 i'm at poison spider mesa trailhead i've been shot please hurry and then i lay the radio down and i lay back down to, onto the ground and as i was laying back i see black schmear on on the floorboard and the seats and on the door and i realized oh that black stuff is my own blood now i'm pretty queasy on the scene a lot of my own blood and honestly it was a uh, bit of a blessing that it was dark. So I lay down and I didn't know what to do after that. I'd never trained on what to do if you were injured and uh, waiting for, you know, medical assistance to arrive. It just never occurred to me. But what I did research out and study, read some articles on breathing and how you can slow your vitals in a traumatic situation to calm yourself down, to Slow the bleeding, and so I just started to focus on one breath to the next and to be slow about it. Well, while I'm trying to be slow in breathing, I don't know this, but I'm filling up internally. It's getting really hard to breathe. I'm just focusing on one breath to the next. So I'm laying down on the ground. I'm hearing familiar voices on the radio. Those who I work with daily, I live in a small town, Moab, population of 5,000, counties 8,000. And uh, we work closely together. We've got federal, local, state, county officers, and we kind of back each other up. So we're close-knit family. And I hear help coming. Well, my supervisor, who I started on the shift with that night, he calls for a helicopter immediately. All I said was, you know, minimally, I, I've been shocked, Lee Turry, and fortunately that helicopter was, was en route from uh, Colorado, which is about an hour flight or 40-minute flight away, Grand Junction. So let me get back to what, what we do now. Carry a tourniquet with me, um, uh, blood clot kit, that kind of thing. Since then, studied how to treat yourself, you know, when you're out in the back, back country. And it's just you. And anyway, grateful for that training and, and for the help that arrived about 12 minutes later. And they came up. They cut off all my clothes. I had a weird thought as they were cutting off my clothes. I, I was wearing my favorite stuff that day. It was just in the cycle of laundry, you know, under armor, to uniform, to pants, to the boots. It was just just the stuff you feel good in, uh, my favorite, uh, I guess, uniform. And they were cutting it off, and the thought in my head was, oh, man, I am never getting this stuff back. I was so disappointed at that. Looking back on it, it was real encouraging to know that at least I had the mentality I was going to work another day. I was going to get back to what I was doing. It just never occurred to me that death was an option.
life is, is so worth living for. And so got my clothes off, threw them in the ambulance. I was uh, conscious through the whole ride. My supervisor shows up as the ambulance is leaving, and he's at, they're asking me questions about his description, where he is, where he could be. And uh, I remember the whole ride back to Allen Memorial Hospital, which was a legally condemned building at the time. They were building the new hospital, and they're about to reopen in January. This was happening in November. So I make it to the hospital unconscious, and I've lost a lot of blood. I was told when they opened the doors to the ambulance to the ER that, that the blood flowed out like, like a waterfall. So a guy my size holds about 10, 12 units, adult, human. 10 to 12 units of blood, and they were struggling to get it into me. Fortunately, there was blood, extra blood at the hospital, and my blood type, A positive, is real compatible with a lot of other blood types. And so if you uh thinking about donating blood, I would highly suggest it. It saved my life that night, and uh, there's my plug for uh, for donating donating blood. My wife got a call. Right, right as I get to the ER, and it's from a friend, and she has a scanner. Her husband's a trooper, state trooper. She says, "You got to get to the hospital right now." And she's like, "Why?" She's like, "No one's told you." And she's like, "Told me what?" She says, uh, "I'll call you back." And she hangs up. You can imagine my wife's response to that. It must have been uh, a little traumatic. After she hangs up, another supervisor of mine called and said, "Finally, spit it out. You've got to get." hospital right now Brody's been shot it doesn't look good you better hurry now she hangs up she gets a knock at the front door and it's that friend who had just called her and said I'll watch the kids you get over to the hospital and uh, so Wendy jumps in the car it's about a two minute drive as she was driving to the hospital she's overcome with this um, feeling this impression that I was going to be okay I was going to live and it was going to be all right. And so she showed up to the hospital real calm. If you can imagine the ER, it's chaos, right? I'm, I'm on death's door, and everyone I know is there. And I, I just hear a lot of chaos. I'm on the table and, and hearing voices and, and whatnot. I'm just trying to focus on my breath, on breathing one breath to the next. And the ER doctor actually walked up to her and asked her if she really was uh, her spouse. She was just so calm called out a blessing from above but she came up and whispered into my ear and said hey Brody you're finally going to get a helicopter ride that you've always wanted I didn't laugh or respond but boy it's sure nice to hear her voice and then I got intubated and thrown on the chopper and they threw units of blood numbers 15 and 16 and uh with the hope that I would make the 40 minute flight to Grand Junction now I have the look According to the staff there in the ER, that I was not going to make it. All those there said, I just had the look like he's not going to survive. And for some reason, mid-flight, I stabilized and surprised the doctors in Grand Junction. And then uh, I went into a coma for almost a month. And let me tell you, it was the greatest month of my life. I don't remember. I don't remember much of anything. I did have uh, two dreams in the hospital. One was real comfort. I was surrounded by my family. We were on a train. We were headed to Plymouth Rock. We'd try and go somewhere every Thanksgiving. And being surrounded by them and and doctors, it was just real comfort because I was full of anxiety. Someone had tried to end me that night, and that did not sit well with me at all. The other dream is, here's what heavy narcotics do to you was I thought I was being used as a prop on a CSI show. So I was wheeled into this room with burn victims and uh, other patients at the hospital, and they were going to film the scene. And how I thought the hospital is their money. And so I got really pissed off, and I started tearing out tubes. And, uh, yeah, you know, just uh, struggling to get out of bed. And here I am intubated. They're strapping me down. I've got to briefly opened my eyes to see a nurse with her finger in my face and yelling at me, and I thought I was going to get kicked out. and They weren't going to help me anymore. It was just a real vivid, vivid dream. But that's all I remember about the four weeks. It was it was a nice, nice four weeks. Apparently, I was, I'm told I died several times on the operating table. 
and had to be revived. I don't remember it. I didn't see a white light, but I will say I felt an extremely overwhelming comfort that, that death is not such a bad thing, that things are, are in my belief, is that there is a, a life after death, and it, I was just overwhelmed with a comfort and a peace that is hard to explain in words. But uh, if you don't believe in a higher power, it's time to start rethinking uh, your priorities. But that's my take and my my opinion. But I certainly felt uh, a great comfort through all of it. Through the whole shooting, there was definitely maybe some help, some guardian angels or whatnot. But I sure felt a, a presence anyway. If I could interrupt you, Brody, I just want to let everybody listening know that if they've just joined us, we are speaking with Ranger Brody Young, who is a ranger with the Utah Division of Parks and Recreation. And Ranger Young just got finished recounting a harrowing story about being wounded in the line of duty, specifically shot nine times, and what that felt like. And I would ask, Brody, given all of the things that took place and the extent of your injuries, how long were you hospitalized? My stay in the hospital in Junction was six weeks. I was in a coma for almost four of those weeks. When I woke up, I, I started to heal uh, really quickly. You can imagine being shot nine times. Um, there's a lot of nerve damage and a lot of holes and stuff needs to be patched up. And I, uh, it was, I mean, a coma is, is necessary. It allows your body to heal when they breathe for you and do everything else for you. And then uh, when they start to wake you up, that's where the real work begins. I could barely lift my head off the pillow. I couldn't understand the clock in the wall. Someone had just put the first-generation iPad next to me and couldn't even hit the T on the board. I was just, when you're intubated or in a coma for so long, you lose dexterity you lose muscle you atrophy quite a bit and so I had to rework all those muscles I mean sitting up and putting my feet on the cold floor with two nurses beside me would wear me out I'd have to lay down and take a nap again good two three hour naps and so there was a slow progress of standing up making it to the edge of the bed laying back down, starting over, making it to the door frame of the hospital room. And mind you, with two small nurses next to you, I was afraid of falling over. I just had no energy, no muscle. Kind of like when you have the flu and you're down for a couple of days and when you recover from it, you're groggy, you're slow, and you know you got the little aches that you got to work through and get back into the swing of things. And I had a, a month of that, and so the rigorous process but I just started to heal and got to tell you about nine months before this happened I uh, had a distinct impression that, that said you need to exercise and get really consistent so cardio you know the push-up sit-ups run kind of uh, crossfit craze that's it, all over the place now it was get consistent get fit you know for me not knowing that this this was going to happen but Again, it's what happens, happens. And, you know, some of us are born at the, on the, on the top of the mountain. Some of us are born at the bottom, each with a, a destination to get to. And, and bad things happen and none of us are immune. And, uh, this, this was my, this was my thing to get through. And so I looked at it from that point of view. Um, and I think that's what got me out of the hospital so quickly. So I was, uh, released Christmas Eve of all days. What a great gift, right? The, the staff at the hospital, I think, were trying to give us. Now, no doctors were working. This is all, you know, interns and new, newer employees of the hospital. And um, they wanted they wanted to send me home Christmas Eve, and I passed all their tests. And uh, it's probably the worst day to get released. But we sat in a Walgreens parking lot for like four hours trying to get the right medication <laughs> to get to get home but to, to be home Christmas Eve I mean what what a gift after all that and uh, to see my kids uh, open their presents the next morning and just to be together because they had certainly seen me when I was on death's door now I'll never understand what 
they went through when I was, you know, induced into a coma. They were they're watching me die. And to this day they don't like to they don't like to talk about it. If I go and, and speak about it, they they won't come do it. Just I just I can't quite fully understand what they went through. But we sure spent a lot of time throughout the next year that I was doing physical therapy and stuff, trying to recover, get my strength back. Every night it was a question-answer session and just snuggling uh, with my kids. And they would ask me questions. Uh, they were young at the time and curious and trying to understand why someone would try to hurt their daddy. Right, My oldest, who was six at the time, he took it pretty well, but his comfort was food. He'd just have a full stomach and, and life was good. And, and so we battled that for, for a while. That was that was just where he went to. My three-year-old, Jade, she got really angry at the world. She was actually yelling at nurses in the hospital. You can't keep my dad here. We're taking him home. You can imagine, the, you know, the, the voice in mind of a three-year-old. Uh, she just didn't understand and... And as time went by, she was just very clingy and she wouldn't play with friends. And, you know, kindergarten started and we were still struggling with this idea of the separation. And so what we did is we got, we got professional help. We it's called play therapy. It's just like what it sounds. You go into a room with a counselor and there's a map on the floor with cars and figures and, and you play. And her play went from people dying, not making it to the hospital, real negative, you know, to, to just the opposite through many sessions where the good guys win and, uh, you know, making it to the hospital, rescuing and having some success through play. And that, in her little mind, her limited vocabulary really helped turn it around for her to where she could finally go to, you know, kindergarten and, and play with friends and I guess realizing in her own little mind that the world is safe. She can walk away from our home and come back and all is well. So, I mean, that was a real help. My youngest, he was nine months at the time, was too young and, and didn't remember much. And he's a good balance uh, between the two. They said that was the greatest year of their lives. They, my daughter was like, Daddy, I love your new job. Because I was home every day recovering. <laughs> it was a real special time, honestly, and uh, one that I'll cherish and, and never forget. Talk a little bit more about that recovery process. I can only imagine that the psychological impact of somebody trying to take your life, fighting through an extensive physical recovery, and in your case, not knowing who shot you and why must have been very hard to work through. How did you specifically deal with that emotionally or psychologically? Well, that's a great question. So when we first got home, I, I could go on short walks, you know, with the cane. I was like the old man in the neighborhood walking down the street, really fragile, feeble. But we went on this short walk and someone lit some fireworks, like firecrackers near us. And boy, I thought my heart jumped out of my chest. It was just, I was still so full of uh, anxiety and didn't like that feeling. It was really uncomfortable and uh, there was still a lot of fear inside of me. So I decided early on in the hospital to, to run at this fear. I had to know if I could get back to where I was before that, that I had made it. And so I would, I would put myself through a few series of tests. One, one was when I could drive again at night, I drove out to the spot where this all happened at the trailhead. And I just went to the, the trailhead, turned off the lights, and I was shaking. But just to know that I could be there alone at night and that uh, life was still okay, that was a, a real stepping stone. As far as getting this fear, this anxiety, I mean, none of us can live in fear. You can't move on unless you find a way to overcome it. So for me, it was running at it and then certainly spent a lot of time on my knees and asking, praying for comfort. So 
in your case, you didn't know who shot you other than the fictitious name that you were given, Michael Orr from the movie The Blind Side, and you didn't know why. Uh, how much was that a factor in you trying to find balance as you were going through recovery? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, it was, we did find out who did shoot me. His name was Lance Leroy Ariano. He was 40 at the time, um, you know, 6'1", 160. And his mom actually came forth and uh, revealed that early on. Also, his car was found that he drove off with. Um, he kind of drove off the beaten path when he left me and tried to hide hide the car. He actually grabbed some supplies from his car. There's evidence of uh, blood drops around his car. But he grabbed a backpack and ended up having a 22 rifle and backpack. And he hiked about a mile away from his car. And then uh, he set up to ambush some officers that he thought might be coming towards him. I and mean, this was that initial night. We pieced, or, you know, investigators pieced it together later. And then for some reason before the sunrise, he left all of those things there, the rifle, backpack, some food, and uh, disappeared. And uh, his trail disappeared from that spot. Now, where he disappears, a lot of sandstone and uh, real rock and really hard to track. And the, the trail just got washed out. So they actually tracked from the car, a tracking team, you know, law enforcement tracking team, tracked from his car to the spot and then saw all of his gear and then disappeared from that point. And he went missing for five years. Hundreds of officers were out there searching in this vast area. But I mentioned it earlier, this area is huge, open, remote, thousands of caves. And you could just about hide and, and disappear and never be found. So to the credit of the officers, man, they searched a huge, huge area that, you would need thousands of officers to to find, you know, search every crack and cranny. You know, hundreds. So his mom was somewhat helpful in at least identifying him. She also gave us some history on him, and he didn't have a very good upbringing and didn't like cops. The family didn't like cops, and he would actually talk about amongst his friends on where to shoot a cop and where not to. And, a stepdad who abused him, who was a uh, former deputy, and he actually had his stepdad when he was young at gunpoint, and uh, his mom asked him later, why didn't you shoot him? I mean, just, you know, just a rough upbringing, and so his opinion of, of police was pretty negative. So as you're going through the recovery process and, and dealing with working back, are you thinking, since he hasn't been identified at that time, are you thinking that he's after you personally, that he's after officers writ large? I mean, what, what is the thought? I mean, are you walking around seeing this guy in different places? How do you conduct your life knowing that the person who tried to take that life is still there? That's a great question. I thought I saw him several times in the months following this, but people who visit Moab, they're all, you know, long, dark hair scraggly looking. I mean, you go out into the backcountry, they all look like, you know, Lance did that night. But they had officers staged in my house for a couple of weeks just because we didn't know. I didn't know him before this incident. He didn't know me. But there was the fear that there would be some retaliation. And him not being found really stood in the back of my mind, you know, for that five years. And uh, get this, I mean... Christmas Eve 2015, I'm making vanilla to hand out to my neighbors, and I get this knock at the door, and it's my lieutenant, my supervisor, who was there that night when I was working with, and uh, he says, come on outside, and, you know, with a serious look on his face, I'm thinking, oh, something's hit the fan, we gotta go. We go outside, right, it's December 24th, and he's like, we found him, and I just, right? burst into tears like, well, there's this weight, extreme amount of weight being lifted from me. And I just, I, I didn't think he would be found. You go so long without knowing. I knew that as long, the longer time went on, that there was less of a chance that he would be a threat to anyone. 
But uh, hearing that news, <laughs> Christmas Eve was really unique. Having come home Christmas Eve five years earlier, so I went to the county uh, offices and uh, got to see all the evidence and saw what was left of him was just, that was just the bones, you know, bones in the sleeping bag. So what he did do is he hiked about 400 yards from that location where he left all of the supplies and he crawled into a cave and he laid down and he died that night in this wet, dark, damp, cold cave. Um, I guess the injuries that he had sustained from the shootout, uh, just he succumbed to those. He just laid down and didn't get back up and then laid in that cave for, you know, five years until uh, two local kids during the Christmas break, 2015, decided we're going to go find this guy because there was a $30,000 reward. It's a pretty good incentive for these two kids. You know, their parents were, were I guess, diligent in having them be self-sufficient. And so these boys went out. They had a great plan. They gritted out, you know, stuff on a map, and they were going to search an area one day, search an area the next. And at the end of their second day, they saw a screen bag sticking out, just right on top of the rocks. And uh, they went and opened it up and saw a weapon that matched the weapon he shot me with. And this really piqued their attention. I have to mention their dad is a city cop investigator. So they talk about this around the dinner table. And they kept thinking, he can't be far. He's got to be closer than what, what the search area suggests. And and so they saw the screen bag, and then they look up a little further, and they see this uh, white rib bone just sticking out right at the entrance to this cave or what looked like a crack in the ground. And it drops about five feet, and this cave goes in quite a ways. And so they were really excited. Ran and got the sheriff, and they came out and the kid who found it, Caleb Shumway, ended up being the only one who could fit down into this crack and in this cave. It's because all that gear that we cops wear, right? He crawls in there and ends up taking the photos and uh, dragging everything out. And um, those kids, uh, he and his younger brother got the reward, 30000 so they get to go to school. And um, he's in the Air Force Reserve and married now and younger brother just graduated from high school and just a real real uh nice ending or great closure to me i got really sick after this happened just finally i could let up and let go of this this idea that he's out there and he could still cause harm to other people so brody you're back on the job now and I know that over the years I've spoken with several officers who were shot in the line of duty and I can think of a few that returned to the job after they recovered. However, I've met two who recovered physically, but were not emotionally prepared to return. In fact, one of them actually told me something to the effect of the doctors patched him up physically, but emotionally, he felt that he was left to heal on his own. This officer, he initially returned to work, but after being back a short time, just decided that he couldn't do the job anymore. As you were going through the recovery process, did you know for certain that you wanted to return to a career in law enforcement? And at what point did you feel confident that you were able to get back in the saddle? It's a great question. You know, there was a there was a fork in the road. I knew that if I could get back, I'd, I'd made it physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. But the further uh, as time went on and the further I wasn't doing law enforcement, it was becoming easier to justify, yeah, maybe I shouldn't go back. Maybe I should stick with something, you know, that's a little more safe. And But there was just a part of me that, that had to know I could get back. And so my supervisors were actually uh, really, um, I wouldn't say mean, but um, diligent in making sure I was okay mentally, physically, socially to be able to, to get back to where I was before. I mean, it's a traumatic thing and you got to be right in the head so that you don't, no offense to the postal workers, go postal on, you know, the public. And they had to know. So they were pretty rigorous. In fact, our non-law enforcement administration thought they were being too hard on me, but I'm grateful that they they were hard. They had to know, and I had to know. They gave me the benefit of, you know, hitting hitting the issues from from all different directions. I went through a lot of psychological evaluations, 
which which was a real which was good. I I had also decided early on deep down that that I was going to do it. I was going to return and work. Now my I guess my location changed a little bit. My occupation sort of changed. I went a little bit more administrative. I'm in the boating world, so I help enforce laws on the water, uh, the education, the navigation of it for the state of Utah. And so I'm a little bit more administrative, but still love to get out and meet people. And that really helped as far as that transition with my family at home. The first day I got in the uniform and went down and sat to eat breakfast, they were down there eating cereal. My kids were, and the three of them looked up, up at me and my oldest said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to go work on the water today. And they're like, what? They'd never seen me in uniform, right? For years, for at least for a year. I said, yeah, I'm going to go out and work. And they went, okay. And they went right back to eating their cereal. And to me, that was a huge, huge comfort that we had overcome, at least started to overcome that issue of if my dad goes back, he may not come back. And uh, we had had crossed, you know, a crossroad. And that was a real comfort. Now, uh, Wendy, she was really supportive throughout all. Is that your wife? This is my wife. I'm sorry. She was really very supportive, but she was really mean to me. When I was recovering early on, she would, you know, if I was like thirsty, she'd say, get up and get your own drink. You know, go play with kids for five minutes. She just, she just saw that the more I moved and interactive, um, interacted with, you know, my kids and stuff that I was going to recover more quickly. So I mean, I'm grateful she was so mean and didn't just coddle me and, and allow me to, to sit there day after day and to dwell right on the negative. She was a real influence in a force. Having a great supportive home life was huge. Absolutely huge. I don't know what I'd do without it. Well, you, you, you've used that word mean twice in response to how your supervisors interacted with you after the incident or as you were working your way back in, even in your wife. And so I take that mean to mean caring, pushing you to make sure that you were okay. Uh, maybe in the case of your supervisors who, in all fairness, you know, they're people, not necessarily mental health or counseling experts, were doing what they felt was necessary to ensure that your well-being was being safeguarded, that you weren't a risk to yourself. And if, in fact, you got back on the job, you wouldn't be a risk to the public. During that process, if you don't mind me asking, were the services that you sought provided through the department and were they adequate in your opinion? Yes, they were provided through uh, the department. I feel like it was adequate, but I uh, I found a piece early on that, that allowed me to, I don't know, take the abuse of, of you know, the rigorous, going through something rigorous, getting back to, to feeling normal again, to Trusting in society, this whole experience reaffirmed at least my faith in, in society. There's so many more good things and good people doing good things more often than the few and the bad that get highlighted. You know, on the news, if you want to have a good day, stop watching the news. Walk away from it. Don't let it affect your life. It's just not worth it. So, Brody, if you were able to have your experiences inform law enforcement leaders as they seek bolster the level of support and psychological services that they provide for rangers, troopers, deputies, officers, what guidance would you offer them based on the experiences that you've had? You know, you can't just go, an officer who's been through something and you go up and you ask, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm good. We can't, we can't do that anymore. You have to immediately assume when someone goes through something traumatic that they it should be i mean I would hope someone would go on their free will to get that that help you know the counseling but we we gotta stop just asking you okay, yeah, I'm good, okay, let's move on. It's just not the way we we should be doing things. There should be a a criteria or uh you know how mental mental sorry mental health advocates that can uh steer you down the path to, to feeling normal, knowing what the signs are, the, the little things that they're doing at home. And their spouse or a significant other should be right there, too, so that they can recognize those signs. This is how we think, how we can prevent more you know, suicide from, from, from law enforcement, from first responders. We've, we've got to look for those signs. They're, they're there. The old days of this cop 
you know, I'm invincible. No matter what I fear go through, it's, it's got to stop. That's my suggestion. You got to go beyond asking, are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. What about your brothers and sisters in law enforcement? What advice would you give them? They're struggling to maintain balances. They fight through the more traumatic aspects of the job, the repeated exposure to trauma, maybe line of duty injury, or similar to your case, being wounded in the line of duty. What information would you want them to have? I would I would say this get there's several things, but get your home life in order, right? Start being honest with yourself. There's that's just one part of it. The other part of it is, is man, get in shape. You gotta stay physically in shape. It's gonna keep your mind clear. And then um before every shift you should put yourself in a scenario. There's a whole lot of police videos out there, police websites you can go and you can watch an incident and put yourself in that place and critique it play the game of what if they do this you know on a traffic stop you know watching this officer go through this you know traffic stop they do this i'm going to do that it's all reactive right we're so defensive and reactive but i think we can expose ourselves to more situations and scenarios so that we're prepared for it because if you're prepared right we shall not fear i mean like fear, the past and the future are products of our mind, right? No amount of guilt can change the past. No amount of anxiety can change the future. Happy people know this. Folks on living in the present. We have been speaking with Ranger Brody Young. And Ranger Young, thank you so much for talking with us in such a candid and open manner. Thank you for allowing us to learn from your experiences. And we wish you the best as you go forward. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gil. Sure appreciate this and the opportunity. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook, www.facebook.com backslash DOJCOPS on YouTube, www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJCOPSOffice or on Twitter at COPSOffice. Our website is www.cops.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.